crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. You're listening to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe. Welcome, everyone, uh, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Growth Show. I'm Mike Volpe, the CMO at HubSpot, and today I am joined by Tom Tungas, who's a partner at Redpoint Ventures. Uh, Tom, thanks a ton for joining us. I'm really excited to have you as a guest. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. Now, tell everyone a little bit about yourselves. I may add in a little bit of color here, but um, you're sort of, you have a, a pretty famous blog, uh, but tell us a little bit about that and a little bit about your work at Redpoint as well. Yeah, that sounds great. So I've been at Redpoint for about six and a half years. I joined Redpoint from Google. I was a product manager there and actually started uh, in the sales operations team selling ads to social networks. And before that, I worked at two startups as a job engineer. Um, and uh, at Redpoint, I focus on early stage software companies and data infrastructure companies. Uh, Redpoint's been around for about 16 years and we invest in technology companies all the way from hard infrastructure through consumer um, and everything in between. And we invest in the U.S. and in Europe and in China, and then we've got a team and a fund in Brazil. And how? And you have uh, you know a couple degrees, I think, in mechanical engineering and like machine learning and engineering management. And you know you were a, a PM at Google. Like, how'd you make the jump from the engineering side of the world to the investing side of the world? Like, how'd that work? Yeah. So I initially, so with my dad, I actually started a little software company when I was seventeen, and we were building software for law firms. And uh, then I went to school and I studied computer uh, computer uh, computer science and mechanical engineering. And kind of at the intersection of the two, so like autopilot stabilization, uh, sorry, autopilot systems, satellite stabilization systems. And then when I graduated, I wanted to learn how to build a product for real. So I went to work for a startup that was started by a bunch of Dartmouth guys, and we were doing large, you know, large-scale programming for a bunch of the, for the Army, the Navy, and Homeland Security. Um, and so I learned what it was to build an, uh, an enterprise application, really large-scale, very large databases, secure environments. Um, and... And then I got to Google. I really wanted to go uh, to California. Kind of, I had read a lot about what was happening here, and I really wanted to be a part of it. Um, and so I got into business as kind of a twist of fate. So my GPA was a three three, coming out of Dartmouth, and Google's cutoff at the time for their hiring was three five. So they wouldn't take me as a product manager and engineer. So I said, well, I just I just need to break in, and somehow I'll, I'll find my way to be becoming a product manager. So they took me effectively as a salesperson or an account manager. And so that's how I got the, my first taste of huh. uh, being on the business side. That's interesting. <laughs> how? Do, yeah. Wow. Now, how? Um, shouldn't Google like make allowances? Like you were, I think, was it was it ME undergrad? I mean, that's a much harder major than like what I did, which is like econ and government, right? So, you know, you would think well, that, that they should have an algorithm hard. for that. You think? I'm sure you studied pretty hard. No, uh, not really. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I work pretty hard. You know, now they're making many more exceptions. I think they've done you know long-term regressions on what care, you know what what yeah. leads to performance or great great success. But at the time, they were pretty hard on that three five, um, and so there, there was basically no way around it for me. Wow, interesting, cool. All right, now the the so you do some awesome work at Redpoint, and you guys have had some great investments. But I think the, probably the thing, and you know, feel free to disagree with me, but the thing that I think makes you most famous right now is your blog. And you have this blog where you do a lot of, you know, there's a lot of commentary. And I think you blog almost daily or daily. 
yeah. there's a lot of right. analysis. I think what you're most famous for, I, I would say, the stuff that gets sent to me the most that you write is this all this analysis of SaaS companies and different metrics and sort of the growth metrics. But before we get to that kind of stuff, like why, like why do you bother to blog? Like you're a VC now. Don't you have way more important things to do? <laughs> you know, I get a lot of questions about the blog. I started blogging five years ago. And I started writing because uh, two main reasons. The first was um, I wanted, you know, I needed to find a way to kind of differentiate myself in the ecosystem. You know, the venture venture world has gotten increasingly competitive, and I thought blogging might be one way to do it. Yeah, I, I held, you know, Fred Wilson and uh, Chris Dixon obviously in high regard. They had kind of broken out, both doing the same thing, um, and so I, I really wanted to see if I could do the same. Um, and you know, and I, I, it does take a fair amount of time. So you're right. I blog. I, you know, I probably estimate something like four to five blog posts a week. So it's almost every working day, and it takes about sixty to ninety minutes to write each post, uh, including the analysis. So it is a fair amount of time. And you know, my partners have put the question to me, and our investors have put the question to me of whether or not that investment's actually worth it. I, if you rewind six years or four years, I think at that point in time, um, you know, it would have been hard to kind of show. Uh, return on investment, but content marketing is the kind of thing where you—it's a little bit like a bank account. You get the benefits of compounding returns, and so you know, little by little, traffic's been growing, and and as a consequence, you know, I'm seeing great deal flow. I think we've got as a firm much better brand recognition, um, and it just helps me you know, start conversations like these and, and meet different people in the industry. So I think it's been uh, incredibly valuable. You know, the, the other reason I really started the blog is I was getting all these questions from entrepreneurs about like. Hey, you know, what should this metric be, or where are these other companies? And quite frankly, most of the time, I didn't know the answer to the question. And so I was running the analysis myself, um, and I was sharing it with the entrepreneur who asked the question. But I thought it would be a whole lot more helpful to the ecosystem, you know, if I actually syndicated it, and so that everyone could benefit from it. And so. Well, um, and then and then you have an easy way just to direct all you know those questions to like, well, hey, I wrote a blog post about that. Like, you should have you should have you know you should have done a Google search, you know, site colon you know my blog, right? So, uh, no, I mean, because a lot of the sort of activity I can't I think in your industry is there's a lot of people that want to get investment from you, but you can only make a small number of deals per year, so you have to figure out some way to maintain kind of a mass level of communication while still building a lot of thought leadership, and so. I don't know. There's another. So you probably know David Scott at, at Matrix, who's one of our investors. Yeah. He has, I think he has another one of those sort of top VC blogs, especially on the entrepreneur side, where they go for a lot of like insight. You know, you're you're much more analytical and you have a lot more data to sort of support these conclusions. His is a little bit more theoretical, but I think both of those are, are blogs that entrepreneurs get directed to all the time for all their questions about you know what should this look like, how should I think about this, or like what are the you know how should I be thinking about this problem, things like that. So. Um, I think it's, I think it's great. I think, you know, again, I think that you guys, I, I, I actually think that a lot of Redpoint's brand is actually tied up in your blog. Um, so hopefully, okay. you know, hopefully all of your LPs see a lot of the value today. <laughs> no, they do. There's no question about it. Um, it's, it's a great asset for us. I mean, I think, you know, the other goal for us is we want to be in all the relevant founders inboxes every day. Um, and so as long as if we can remain top of mind, I think that gives us at least a little bit of a competitive uh, position or advantage. Probably both on deal flow, but also let's say somebody's got multiple term sheets. I would think that they'd say, "Oh, well, I kind of want to work with these guys because I've been reading their blog for so smart, so long." <laughs> no, and, and I think they're really smart, right? I mean, that's one way you can prove yeah. you're smart over time is by saying smart stuff on the internet. Yeah, uh, cool. So yeah, but, okay, but, but talking about David just for a second, I yeah. think he, you know, he's exceptional. I mean, he he, I think was the first one who kind of laid out all the way that a SaaS business works, and he's got, you know, I think. Two posts on SaaS metrics, and I think you know you could arguably call them the 
seminal post on on the fundamentals of SaaS company. It's really funny, and I'm going in a totally different direction now, but I feel like when yeah. we started HubSpot, so you know, I was fifth employee, and that was like eight years ago now. Back wow. then, like no one knew how to, they had some idea how to think about SaaS businesses, but not nearly the sophistication they had today. And if you look at like our metrics and the things that we were tracking like before and sort of around the time of like our A round versus like what the expectations are now, it, they've changed so much. And I think, you're, I think you're right. There's been a big evolution of learning about SaaS and SaaS companies and how you should think about them in the past, you know, decade or so. There's no question. Actually, Christoph Jans wrote, wrote this post about you know, basically the increasing table stakes of SaaS companies and how the, you know the sophistication, the, under, the understanding of the metrics of the business, how they how they're growing, account expansion, all that stuff, cash management. You just have to kind of even when you raise a Series A, you have to have a sense for what those metrics look like because SaaS companies are a kind of business that they lend themselves to lots of analysis, which is why I like them. But uh, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because an entrepreneur's got to be pretty sophisticated. Okay, so tell me, like, based on all of your analysis, you know, give us the, you know, you've, re- you've written all these posts. What are the top couple things that are, are sort of the, the basic guidelines? Like, what if you had to sort of boil down your entire blog into two or three pieces of advice for growth for entrepreneurs, like, what do you think that they would be? Wow. Uh, two or three pieces of advice. I think the first one is uh, churn matters almost more than any other metric. I think that's the single biggest determinant of a startup's capital efficiency and, you know, how quickly it can grow. Right? Yeah, so, so, so you've written a lot about sort of like customer success being like one of the key things that drives growth. And what you're yeah. basically saying is like having, having those lower churn rates helps you grow so much faster because you're, you're not climbing a hill while you're still sliding down it at a rapid rate. <laughs> totally. Yeah, you're filling the bucket and the bucket isn't leaking at the bottom. That's yeah. another way to put it. Yeah. And, and that's a really, really big deal. And I think... Uh, it kind of validates a lot of other assumptions that you might have. I mean, or a lot of other things about the business, which is that there's really good product market fit, that the um, the users really value the product, and that you're actually creating sustainable and defensible business. And how early is it is it to like measure that? And what you know? So I mean, I talked to some early early stage like SaaS companies, and they're like, oh, we have ten customers, and we have you know zero percent customer churn, and we have negative revenue churn. I'm like, but it's only ten. Co- it's like the sample size is so small. It's like those are your friends. Like of course, like. How do you sort of think about when the metrics start to be measurable in a way that it makes sense to think about the numbers meaning something? And, and is it customer churn or is it revenue churn that companies should worry about in those really early stages? Yeah, I think at the beginning, it really depends on your price point. So if you're like a freemium product, kind of you know, 10 to $15 a month, you can see churn almost right out of the gate. And you can measure it and, it, and it's a valuable number. I think the higher up you move, um, and you know, once you start getting into contracts, the only time that you're actually going to see churn is at typically the 12-month renewal or whenever your contracts renew. And so then it's important. Um, you know, and if you're doing multi-million-dollar deals over the course of years, you may not know for a very long time. Um, but I think you really want to be paying attention to churn as soon as you possibly can. Like as soon as there's uh, a decision opportunity or renewal opportunity for uh, some segment of your customer base, some meaningful segment of your customer base, you want to understand exactly. Who, who is making which decisions and why. Um, and then the second part of the... Sorry, I forgot the second part. What was the second part of the question? I forgot. Uh, this, Probably wasn't important. <laughs> <laughs> I think so on that sort of renewal sort of thing. So would yeah. you... It sounds like you would maybe couch companies in the early stages to maybe have, let's say, monthly contracts versus annual so you have more of an opportunity to learn about churn versus you know, if you cram everybody into annual contracts really early, then... 
you have less of an opportunity for churn and then you, you maybe don't learn as much, right? Is that maybe something? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's pretty rare for a company to be out of the gate with annual contracts. I yeah. think, you know, your initial, you know, X customers, whether that's 10 or 500, I think we're all going to want to test a product and figure out whether or not they want to be in it for the long run. And so I think that does offer you an opportunity to, to see, you know, how they react and what the churn rates will be. Yeah. Um, but I think it's really important as quickly as possible for most SaaS companies to move to annual prepay just because of the impact on cash. Yeah, so that was um, something else I wanted to ask yeah. you about, which is so something else you've written is that one of the other sort of keys to, to growth is getting cash up front, right, which is obviously like kind of the opposite of annual of monthly contracts. So talk to us about what's the – why do you care about cash up front? I mean – you know, who cares about cash, right? I mean, you know, don't all these companies burn a lot of cash and like, isn't your job to give them more cash? Like what, why does that really matter? What, how does that actually impact growth? Yeah, cash matters a lot. So uh, if you, um, so if you get an annual prepayment, basically what's happening is your customer is lending you money to grow for free. And that's, that's unbelievable, right? Like, because in order to get cash, typically a founder's got to go and raise equity that's dilutive, right? So a venture investor is going to buy some fraction of the company in exchange for cash. But if you, can, if you can borrow money from your customers in order to help your business grow faster at, at free rates, you're going to be able to grow significantly faster. And you're, you're also going to have a lot more predictability in your business because you're not waiting until the end of each month to know whether or not a customer is going to renew and whether or not they're going to pay you that month or the following month. So if you get all the money up front, you've got a lot more predictability in your business and, uh, and, uh, and you're basically financing your growth for free. Yeah, that point about cash is cash no matter where it comes from. And if it comes from your customers, then you're just paying for it with product over time versus if it comes from your investors, you're giving up part of your ownership, I think is a powerful one that a lot of people don't necessarily think about. That's a great way of saying it. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. So, okay, now tell us, what's the most ridiculous metric you've seen a SaaS company present to you or track or talk to you about? So one metric that I loved, there was a founder we were uh, who was working, was building a SaaS product for farming. And it was... Uh, uh, in a, in the dairy space, and so his um, his key metric was cows in cloud. The number of cows that were being tracked uh, is that like kick like CIC or how to like what yeah, it? CIC. That was, okay. that was exactly the metric on the slide, and it was just it's just a metric that stuck in my mind. Um, just as you know, it, I mean, it's it's totally the right metric for the business. It's just. I've never seen it before, and I doubt I'll ever see it again as a metric for a SaaS Yeah, business. I mean, I guess the cows aren't users, so, <laughs> right? I mean, because that's, that's what everyone else would call them, right? Like we're, drug, right? like we're drug dealers, but I guess he's more of a farmer, so that kind of, okay. Cows and cloud, I like that. I will look for that IPO in a few years from now, and have, I like forward, look forward to like Wall Street investors being like, oh, what's the cows and cloud metric this quarter? That'd be <laughs> awesome. Um, exactly. Okay, cool. That's great. So, um, okay, now you've also written a lot about, um, you, you talked earlier about sort of your blog and the power of the blog and it's helped you, you build your brand, it's helped Redpoint. You've written a couple, one post recently about sort of the, the kind of key benefits of content marketing. I wanted to zone in one part of that, and you mentioned this earlier, sort of that compounding factor. And I think one of the stats that you saw for your blog was that half of the page views for a typical post come after the day that you published it. Talk yeah. to people a little bit more about you know wh- why that sort of means that when you're thinking about inbound or content marketing that the or, like you may not get a return for a little while. Talk about that that sort of compounding thing because I think that it's something we talk about a lot here at HubSpot, but people seem to have a difficult time sort of grasping that. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you know, humans just generally have a hard time with the difference between linear growth and compounding growth. Um, but you know, typically, what you're going to see when you start a content marketing campaign is for, you know, the first day you're going to have 20 visits and it's going to kind of grow linearly. And then 
what you're really hoping is at some point you kind of have this moment where all of a sudden you've got tons of traffic. And the, w the way to do that is to make sure you're basically trying to train people to come back and, uh, and basically inform as many different people as possible that you have something valuable to say and they should be coming back. But that's going to take a long time in order to kind of create that behavior. Um, and so, you know, when I did that analysis that you mentioned that more than, you know, more than half of the traffic to the posts on my site come afterwards, that's an indicator to me that basically um, what you really want to be writing is, is content that has value over extended periods of time that's going to appear in the search results and that's going to bring people back. And you want as many different pathways or entry points either through search or through Twitter uh, or through other forms of social media to kind of come back to the come back to the content site that you're creating and get them get, get people excited about what you're writing about and get them ideally to subscribe because I think email is probably the most valuable um, uh, asset you can generate from a blog. Um, and so, you know, if you look at like First Round's got a great site, you know, their focus is really a lot on Evergreen. You guys obviously have done an amazing job uh, as well at HubSpot. It's this Evergreen content that, that kind of keeps people coming back that, that really builds that following and, and uh and really helps the site to grow. And so the more of those that you have, like you can imagine over the course of a year, if you write every day, you've got something like 200 or 250 posts. You basically have 200 or 250 different, um, you know, little landing pads for people to come in. And that's a, you know, that's a whole lot more than the, the 14 or the 20 that you might, you know, you might have done in the first month or two. Uh, and if you just keep doing that, keep doing that, then, you know, the network builds, you get more and more inbound links, people keep referring to it, and then the SEO benefits accrue, and, and those are compounding um, as well, uh, and so you know you can, you can grow really quickly after that. Yeah, I think that that point about the evergreen posts, I think, is really important. I think that most you know, for a from a marketing perspective, you might not win on the news centric stuff because it has such a short timeline. But if you can yeah. use the posts that are going to perform well in social over time, like there's posts of yours that are really old that I've shared months after you've written them because they're still relevant and they're still important. You know, same thing for a lot of these other blogs we talked about. So I think that's a good point. Do you have an one thing I want to ask? Do you have an in with Google? Because with, with so they encrypt the search results, so you actually have a lot harder time knowing now which of your evergreen content is performing really well. So I feel like you're, I feel like you know you got some weight to throw around now. It's like could you push them a little bit to kind of open that up? Like they would help you. They would help all of us bloggers if they would give us more of that keyword data, right? I mean, oh my gosh, yeah. You know, I, I will take this as a personal crusade. Yeah, yeah. I will I will sign that uh, petition if you want. Uh, Change.org. I think we need to get that going. So okay, so. Um, now, one thing I wanted to ask you about, so a lot of your advice is based on analysis of publicly available data, these SaaS companies. That data only comes, you know, and for HubSpot, it was in year seven, year eight, right? When we filed our S1 and that went public and everyone can see it. And you had this great post that analyzed the whole, you know, HubSpot thing back before as we were gearing up for our IPO. Do you feel like that biases your sort of advice and information at all? Like, like are we sort of looking a little bit backwards too much? And like the companies that are getting started today might want to certainly learn from, you know, HubSpot and other companies like us that have, you know, done this progression over the last eight years. But if somebody's starting today, should they be thinking about this stuff differently? Or should they, how much should they be copying the playbook of the existing companies that you've talked about? Like, how do, how do you sort of strike that balance? Because in some ways, it's like, I could see it for like a growth stage company, a lot of your blog posts being extremely good advice, but they maybe have kind of a big asterisk for like an, like an early stage company. Do, do you feel that way? Do you agree? Disagree? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's definitely a mass, I mean, there's definitely significant evolution in the SaaS model, right? Um, so there's no question about that. And most of the data that I publish is, like you said, rearward looking. Um, so 
I think the takeaway is, and I think that the takeaway for every blog post or every kind of analysis or any time an entrepreneur gets advice is, it's um, it's 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 bad form to just copy the conclusion out of hand, right? Like, uh, what we're, what I'm really trying to do with the blog is kind of establish a series of frameworks and a way of looking at different businesses, so that when a founder looks at his or her own business, they can they can start from first principles, think through, and then compare it to another result, just to kind of sanity check it, right? Mm. And uh, just to kind of take the take the result of of some, the way that somebody else has solved the problem in an exceptional fashion by going public and applying it to your own business is is most likely going to fail because um, you know each of these businesses that does end up going public is is unique in its own way and it's special and it's because it's found a you know a, a, some advantage in, in going to market and kind of creating a unique product and so you do have to kind of uh, respect and and honor that uniqueness and um, you know you can't just look at data. Uh, in order to be able to solve those problems, right? You got to find your own your own path. Um, but but I do present them more, I, and I try to present them more as a framework or a way of thinking about a business rather than hey, here's the answer. Oh, absolutely. And it, it sounds like it's sort of that classic kind of you know watch the competition but don't imitate them. Sort of like take yeah. those lessons, and they're not really competitors in the sense, but it's other examples. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was I was chatting with um, two two guys that founded a company called Onshape. Which is a SaaS company oh, yeah. here in Boston. Yeah, so they're trying. They're doing CAD in the cloud. So it's like an Autodesk, SolidWorks, whatever, uh, but in the cloud, which no one's really done effectively before. Requires a lot of whiz bang technology. And I remember this is like a couple years ago, but a year and a half ago maybe they came okay. over. They came over to HubSpot. The guys that I know, I respect a ton. I used to work for them, and they're like, "Hey, tell us everything about the HubSpot business model because you know we think we want to copy this for our business." <laughs> no, seriously. And 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 they didn't. I mean, and they're smart guys, and they weren't really trying to copy everything, but they wanted to understand as much as they could. And I was like, "Look, I was like, I will spend. I love you guys. You were huge mentors to me. I will spend as much time as you want." But I told, I was like, "Look." The last thing you want to do is copy our business model yeah. because you guys are starting, you know, our business model is six years old. Like we've been around for six, seven years. You want to think about what the next generation business model is. And so we spent a bunch of time talking about, you know, freemium and things like that and saying, hey, you guys might want to think about that stuff. That stuff wasn't really as much of a big play when we first started HubSpot. You know, we now have some experiments going for some of our new products that leverage that stuff. But, you know, I'm not sure you guys want to copy our sort of, you know, inbound lead gen inside sales model as much. And there might be something else out there for you guys because you're starting way after us. You know, don't copy our old business model in many ways. So I think it's I mean, I think it's interesting. Obviously, I think our, our core business model is also pretty good. Maybe some people do want to copy it. But I, <laughs> I think I think your point about sort of take everything with a grain of salt and learn as much as you can from everyone else. But then figure out what your unique thing is, I think, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing is, you know, once somebody like HubSpot figures out, you know, the inbound marketing Path the market. Everybody else is going to copy it, and so the, you know, the efficiencies that you guys were able to unearth will slowly, maybe not for you guys, but for everybody else, will slowly, um, will slowly erode, right? And it's yeah. just like, if you're starting an, you know, an SE, if you got an SEO strategy that works, it's going to work for you for a couple of years, and, and then everybody else is going to copy it because they know they see your own success, right? So you have to. You have to find the next thing. You always got to be on the hunt for the next model. There's definitely a first mover advantage to sort of go-to-market models. Uh, definitely yeah. agree with that. If you're the first one to crack it, it can have a huge effect, and then everyone else kind of gets less of an effect over time. Totally agree. Uh, okay, random question. Uh, what would you change about Excel if you were the product manager for Excel? God, if I were the product manager for Excel, I would, I would make a Mac version that actually was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> So I use the, I so I know literally I use a PC, and okay. one of the major reasons why is exactly what you just said. 
Oh I love Excel. It's, I'm a highly, my first job was actually investment banking. Like I, I'm, I'm an, I'm very much in the analytical uh, side of marketing and I have, I tried a Mac for like a week at one point, a couple years yeah. ago. And like, I fired up the Excel and it was like, what, what, what is this? Like it was, it was are, like, are it was like, kinder, guy? It, it was like, Oh, keyboard truck. Of course. Of course. Why touch <laughs> You're using Excel. You don't need to use the mouse. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. If you were trained by a bank, you know, you yeah. know how to program the thing inside and out. Totally. Yeah. 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 But, I mean, you know, write some macro, like all that stuff. Yeah. It's just, uh, yeah, that I agree. Okay. So a Mac version that works that probably yeah. they will never do that because that's like the one reason people still buy PCs, I think. But, um, but yeah, in any event. Okay, cool. That's Good true. stuff. All right. Uh, thanks a ton, everybody for joining us. Um, this has been Tom Tungas from Redpoint Ventures joining me, Mike Volpe, the CMO of HubSpot on the growth show. You can catch all of our prior episodes if you go to hubspot.com slash podcast. Uh, But you can also find them in iTunes if you search for The Growth Show. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, we love to get reviews, especially five-star reviews. Uh, And so please check that out there. And we will join you. You hopefully will join us for our next episode uh, when we post them. uh, We post them every single week. So there'll be some great stuff there too. Uh, Thanks a ton. And thanks, Tom, a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's fun. Yeah, if they, I mean, it's like they, you would, I mean, you wouldn't lose them because you'd see like the disturbance at the top of the snow or something. But like, but like, yeah, if I, if I took my, like, even my four year old, if I like dropped him in the snow, it would go up to his head, even though, you know, you don't sink in all the way to the ground. But yeah, it's, it's incredible. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're dealing okay. It's what makes us tough and hardy New Englanders.